Good morning. We are in week three of a series where we're talking together and learning together about prayer. Now, if you missed either of those first two, or maybe you would uh, just like a refresher, invite you to go to the church website, follow the links. There's audio versions as well as video versions of those sermons. In that first week, Brian shared with us some statistics about prayer. He shared with us how often we say that we pray. And the interesting thing was that even people who describe themselves as atheists pray on a regular basis. But I wondered, now what is it that we're spending all that time praying for? So I found a survey, it was done by Lifeway, and it lists the top four things that we pray for, or that we say we're praying for. And it's our friends and family, our own needs, our own sins, and people who are impacted by natural disasters. That's a great list. Those are great things that we can be taking to God. But now let's look at the next set of things we say we pray for. And those would be winning the lottery, the blues take the cup, and that I don't get a speeding ticket. But you know, <laughs> they are. And in fact, whether it's our highest, most altruistic thing, or that uh-oh moment in traffic, God wants us talking to him about those things. He wants us talking to him on a regular basis about all of the things that happen in our life. And that's part of how we build relationship with him, is in talking with him. Back in 1985, Mike Ditko was the uh, coach of the Chicago Bears, and he had a habit of doing a uh, devotional time with the team during the week. So one week he was preparing to do that, and he asked one of the players if he would lead the Lord's Prayer at the end of the devotion. Now, the player he asked was this guy. Remember him? The fridge. The fridge. William Refrigerator Perry. And he said, yeah, he would do that. Well, also there that day was Jim McMahon, who was the uh, quarterback at the time, as well as John Kessis, who was the team chaplain. So McMahon leans over to the chaplain and says, there is no way he knows the Lord's Prayer. There is no way. Look how nervous he is. He's never going to do this. And the chaplain says, of course he does. Everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. And McMahon says, I will bet you 20 bucks he does not know the Lord's Prayer. And now the chaplain has a dilemma doesn't seem right to bet on prayer, but it seems like an easy 20 bucks. And so he takes the bet. So Mike Ditka finishes the devotion, and he says, now will you lead us in prayer? And the refrigerator bows his head and says, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord. And at this point, McMahon leans over to the chaplain, hands him a 20, and says, darn, I didn't think he was going to know it. Well, we are using the Lord's Prayer. We're using the regular one, though, the one that you might find in Luke. And we've been sharing that together. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. Now, that Lord's Prayer is a teaching prayer. I like to imagine that his followers have seen Jesus and they've heard him pray and they've heard the power he brings to it, the intimacy, and they've seen the impact of those prayers. And so they say, teach us to pray like that. And so Jesus teaches them. You'll find it a couple times in scripture and maybe in slightly different ways, but he's teaching them how to pray like him. This isn't uh, magical words that we say. There's a point to it. 
There's something going on in here. N.T. Wright, who is an Anglican bishop, says, I have a sense that the Lord's Prayer is not just a list of topics. It is a list of priorities. And the priorities here are, God, you are good. I need help. Heal me and forgive me. And they need help. And today we're going to be looking at that part about forgiveness. Now in this version it says, forgive me my sins. Other translation says, forgive our debts. The way I learned it was, forgive us our trespasses. And that made sense to me. Debts didn't make sense because I didn't have any money, I was a kid. And sins was sort of a church word. But trespasses I understood because at about that time, we were living on a small farm. Um, I think at one point it must have been like a big farm and they had sliced it into little sections and we lived on one of those little sections. They were all the same. The front part was pasture. We had a couple of cows and a horse. There was a big part that all of our houses were on. We all had uh, big vegetable gardens and fruit trees. And the very back part was all wooded. And in those woods, we had every adventure a child could imagine. We were explorers, we were outlaws. My family was a big science fiction family, so we would boldly go into new planets back there. And each of our farms had barbed wire fences between them. And that was really to keep the animals, keep your animals on your piece of land. But at some point, the people behind us began selling off their farms, and houses started going in there. And so we added something new to our barbed wire fences, and that was a no trespassing sign. So I understood trespassing. Trespassing is going over the line. It's going where you shouldn't be. Don't cross the line. So when I learned the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, I understood what God meant. I didn't need a church word for that. I understood that. Now, God tells us not to cross lines, and he doesn't make it difficult for us. This isn't like a, a tricky thing. He's trying to catch us on something. He tells us where the lines are. The first line he drew was around a tree. And he said, the rest of the garden's fine. Don't trespass. Don't go to this tree. Don't cross the line. Later in scripture, he takes a group of behaviors and draws a line around them. We call those the Ten Commandments. But the lines are clear. Don't worship other gods. Respect your parents. Don't lie. Don't steal. Those are the lines. Those are where you don't trespass. Don't go past that point. But... Human nature likes to get really close to that line. And when we're thinking about the sneaky part of nature, I think of cats. So one of the cat lines a lot of us has is, don't get on the counter. She's not on the counter. She's got a foot on the stool. And how about this next cat? He's not on the counter. He's on a newspaper. On the counter. Unless you think only cats are sneaky, it's dogs too. This dog just got right up on the counter and got pizza for dinner. God knew that we would cross the lines, whether we planned it and did it intentionally or it just happened. He knew that we were going to cross lines. We were going to trespass. We were going to sin. And so he has a plan, and he's had this plan since before we were created. And it's an amazing one that culminates way out here with Jesus being born and going to the cross and giving us forgiveness. But way back here, where he starts laying out the lines, he wants to teach us about forgiveness. He wants to model it for us. He wants us to know about it right up to that point where he sends his son as his gift. One of the ways he did that, uh, we find in the Old Testament, is the Day of Atonement. 
And this is a once a year event. It was given to the Israelites to teach them about atonement. It was a long involved process. The priests had to um, bathe in certain ways, had to wear certain clothes. There was a lot of ceremony around it because it was that important that they know. And at some point after they had um, gone through the ceremonial cleaning and things like that, we see this in Leviticus. He, and this would be the priest, he lays both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sin to the head of the goat. I'm sorry, of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sin to the head of the goat. And then a man who is specially chosen, and he has also gone through a cleansing ceremony, takes the goat out into the wilderness, and the goat takes the sins away. Now, this isn't forgiveness like we know it. This is atonement. This is taking the sins out of the camp so we don't have the smell anymore. But this isn't the gift of forgiveness like we know it because of the cross. But it is what they had, and I, I kind of think of it as like performance art. God's doing performance art. He didn't want to just tell us about atonement. He wanted to show us because he knows we learn better when we watch something. And so he put this together, and the Israelites followed it, we're told, year after year. But forgiveness is something that God continues to talk about in Scripture because it's so important to him that we understand it. In, in Isaiah, we read, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. In Psalms, let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals my diseases. And in Micah, where is there another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? Now, Micah has introduced another idea there, and that's guilt. Because God forgives our sins, he washes them away, and he does not want us to carry the guilt of those sins. Once we've brought them to him and he's forgiven, he wants us to let go of that burden. We're not made to carry that on with us. He's forgiven your sins. Let that guilt go. We look in those same books from the Old Testament in Isaiah, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. I love that idea. I like to think about something I've been praying over and, and even though I know I'm forgiven, I can't quite get my way past it. And I go back to God and say, remember that thing I talked to you about last week? And God says, no. When I forgave it, I forgot it. In Psalms, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And in Micah, you will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing them unfailing love. Now, God knows our sins. He knows everything. But he desires that we confess them to him. He desires that we talk about them. And it's not because he wants to rub our nose in it. He wants to talk because that's how he teaches us and heals us and helps us to not go back to those sins. And we know that confession is important. I mean, if I were on a diet, and at the end of the day I said, Whew, I am so full, tomorrow I'll be better. But that's all I did. There's a really good chance that at the end of the day tomorrow I'm going to say, Whew, I am so full, I'll be better tomorrow. I have much better chance of succeeding if I do something like my fitness pal. And I write in there, well, for breakfast, I had two jelly donuts and a large mocha. And at the end of the day, I say, poof, I'm 
really full. Maybe it was the two jelly donuts. Tomorrow I'll have one jelly donut. We'll see how that goes. And it's the same thing with confession. He wants us to bring him those things to talk about and share with him and learn about. We know this in our secular world as well. Carl Jung is a uh, psychiatrist, developed a lot of our psychological theory, and he says, man has instinctual need to confess that which he perceives to be a wrong or an offense against himself, against fellow men, or against God. It is believed that man's sense of wholeness and integrity, his sense of community, are impaired if wrongs are not confessed. This next quote is from the Accounting Review. I'll let you read all of those words, but even in the dog-eat-dog -dog world of business, they know confession is important to be able to move forward. In Scripture, this is from Psalm 32, and this is David. And David is certainly a man who had a lot of things to confess. And he says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. That's a lot of weight to carry. In our world, if we're carrying that kind of guilt, we might call it anxiety or stress, but he's groaning. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. We look at the other end of scripture in 1 John. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing thing to know exists for us, that forgiveness and the releasing of the guilt. But if we look back at the Lord's Prayer, there's a second part to that. It's, forgive my trespasses as, the, as I forgive those who trespass against me. It's, forgive my sins as I forgive. Now, God doesn't have like a big tally book up, like say, I forgave one, now you got to go forgive one. I forgave two, now you got to go. It's not like that. But God wants us forgiving people's sins because that's part of how he makes us like him. He loves us so much that he forgives our sins. And he wants us to love other people so much that we desire to forgive their sins and release them from that burden as well. In uh, 2 Corinthians we read, and the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And that's part of becoming that glorious image, is loving others that much. Jesus had a, a parable about this kind of forgiveness. We find it in Matthew. And he tells the story of a man who owed a debt. And it was a huge debt. This isn't a car payment or even a whole mortgage. This is so much debt, he will never pay it in his entire life. He will never pay this debt. And you can only imagine what that burden must have been like for him, the fear he must have had day after day, knowing he had this over his head. And one day, the king that he owes it to calls him into his presence and says, I'm sick of that debt. I am selling you and your family into slavery. I am so sick of that debt. And the man begs forgiveness. Please don't do this to me. And the king relents. And he's like, all right, I will forgive your debt. It's gone. Now, at that point, the man's feelings must have flipped completely. Imagine the lightness he walks out of there with. All of that worry, and in his day, being sold into slavery to pay a debt, it was a real threat. He walked out of there forgiven and light, 
It must have been amazing for him. And as he walks away, he sees a man who owes him some money. Now it's not a great big sum of money, it's a regular kind of debt. And he sees this man and he's just been forgiven for this. And so he goes to him and he grabs him by the collar and says, if you don't pay me back what you owe me, I will throw you in prison. And the parable goes on and it doesn't end well for that guy. But you know, Jesus didn't have to explain to his hearers what was wrong with that. And he doesn't have to explain to us. Someone who's been forgiven much should be ready and willing to forgive others. And that's the kind of person he wants to develop us to be. That kind of forgiveness is powerful. And we don't have to just look in uh, parables to see it. We see it in our world, the power of that kind of forgiveness. One of the best examples I know of that kind of thing happened in Rwanda. In 1994, the plane carrying the president of Rwanda was shot down. And that event sparked violence like we can only imagine. Day after day, month after month, horrific violence going on within that country as old wounds were reopened and angers and jealousies. And this wasn't like the government coming in. It wasn't the military conducting it, although they coordinated it. This was neighbor on neighbor. The man you had talked to across the fence yesterday might be in your house with a gun today. And that's how they lived. Gradually, the world community and their own uh, soldiers helped bring that down, and it stopped. But how do you move forward? Well, the way they chose to move forward was forgiveness. I'd like to read to you from a statement made by the man who's now the president of Rwanda who helped bring that forgiveness. And as I'm reading, you're gonna see some pictures. And these are real people from Rwanda. And in each case, the picture contains a perpetrator who had acted out that kind of violence and the person he had asked for forgiveness who gave him that kind of peace. There was a huge puzzle after the genocide. How do you pursue justice when the crime is so great? You can't lose one million people in 100 days without an equal number of perpetrators. But we also can't imprison an entire nation, and so forgiveness was the only path forward. Survivors were asked to forgive and forget. The death penalty was abolished. We focused our justice on the organizers of genocide. Hundreds of thousands of perpetrators were rehabilitated and then released right back into their community. The decisions were agonizing, and I constantly questioned myself. But each time, I decided that Rwanda's future was more important than justice. It was a huge burden to place on the survivors, and perhaps the burden was too great. One day, during a memorial service, I was approached by a survivor. He was very emotional. Why are you asking us to forgive, he asked. Haven't we suffered enough? We aren't the cause of this problem. Why do we have to provide the solution? These were challenging questions, and so I paused for a long time. And then I told him, I'm sorry. You're correct. I am asking too much of you. But I don't know what to ask the perpetrators. Sorry won't bring back lives. Only forgiveness can heal this nation. The burden rests with the survivors because they are the only ones 
with something to give. And so in Rwanda, we saw that forgiveness acted out, and we see it to this day as that nation has healed. And that's the power we have when we offer forgiveness, and it's the blessing we have when we accept God's forgiveness. So it's good to learn about it. What do we do with it? I suspect you know. Brian has been challenging us week after week to set a time for prayer, add to that time for prayer, use that time. And I would suggest to you some other things to talk with God about. Talk with him about your specific sins. Use that confession. Talk to him. Let him help you heal. Let him heal you through scripture, through songs, through the people around you. Let him help you. Talk with him about your guilt. Talk with him about the fact that you don't want to carry it anymore. That burden is more than you want to bear. Let him help heal you and let that guilt slide off of you. And finally, talk to him about forgiving others. Talk to him about how he makes you more into a person like him who is able to forgive. Now, that may mean you need to talk to someone. It may mean you don't. The person you need to forgive may not be close to you anymore. The person you need to forgive may not even be living anymore. But the forgiveness still needs to be offered. And if that's a journey to forgiveness that's difficult for you, there are mental wellness um, options available to you that can help you take that walk to be in the place of forgiving others. And this morning, we're going to spend some time practicing that together. We're going to spend some time in prayer, some of it me praying, some of it you praying quietly over these three options. 